Members of the TalkScript team were on site at JSConf US 2019, where we did a series of interviews with the conference speakers. We had a great time meeting these thought leaders and learning more about each of them and their talks. We've compiled the interviews into a six-part series to help share the essence of JSConf US 2019. This episode contains interviews with Patricia Rialini and Theodore Varillas around the theme of access. All right, we're back. I'm Nick Nisi, and I'm here with Patricia Rilini and Sam Mensa. Rilini like tortellini, linguini, fettuccine. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That was very helpful <laughs> when trying to remember to to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> so, uh, you just spoke at JSConf 2019, and your talk was Donde esta la biblioteca? Yeah, so my talk was basically about what it is like to experience the internet when you are limited by your physical accessibility to the internet mm-hmm. by not owning your own personal device, personal computer, or broadband connection. Mm-hmm. And the talk is partly about being more mindful about being inclusive of users that we don't typically consider, Mm -hmm. and also partially about how that experience informs the way that other people who do not have the level of access that we have and how that informs their usage of the internet. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that is something that is so easy to overlook as developers with high-end MacBooks and everything and fast internet connections. We can simulate slow connections, but there's much more than just slow connections that you talked about in your talk that I thought were really interesting that, that I just never considered before. Yeah, so I when I got my first engineering job after I was working in fine dining for eight years to put mm-hmm. myself through college, and after I got a degree, I wasn't able to find work, mm-hmm. and I didn't want my knees to go out by the time I was 32, so I said I got to learn how to do something and get a job at a desk, so I taught myself how to code, and it was when I was at my very first engineering position that I moved into my first solo apartment, and it was on the same block as my local library, so I was going in all the time to print out concert tickets, because I didn't want to buy my own printer, because it was like, why am I going to spend money on printer mm-hmm. ink for concert tickets? I would go into co-work, because I didn't have AC in my apartment, so the summers were pretty brutal in LA, and the library was a sanctuary for that, mm-hmm. and I've always used library services, checked out books, but being so close to the library meant that I was going there more frequently and spending more time there, and at the same time going into my very first tech office. And so the disparity was just really obvious to me in that moment because it was such a culture shock to have both experiences in my daily life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that is something that definitely an experience that I feel like most of us don't, don't get. Yeah, I think kind of the, the biggest thing that caught my eye in your talk, like the biggest revelation to me that I hadn't really seen before or thought of before was the almost complete lack of privacy that you might have when you're going online and doing things uh, because of certain laws and because, I mean, it's not hardware that you own. And so things can really be monitored in a way that you just don't anticipate. And especially if you're not tech literate, that you don't know what kind of rights you're giving away by, by doing that. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit more about 
about those issues? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually really fascinating because unless you are willing to go out there and look it up for yourself, you wouldn't really know it from looking at them. But a lot of librarians are actually experts on security, web literacy, and many of the things that prevent people who are not familiar with the web from having problems with using it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, libraries are so dependent on federal funding that a lot of their ability to provide access is based on what the government is willing to let them do and that is how a lot of those services are tied to censorship Mm. along with some of the like surveillance and security effects of the Patriot Act and section 215 of the Patriot Act that I talk about in my talk librarians have gone really far out of their way to help make the web a safe place for people because The internet doesn't have a step-by-step walkthrough when you open a browser, right? If you've never been on the internet before and you walk into a public library computer, like, for example, a lot of immigrant people do on a weekly basis, um, 55% of new American arrivals use the internet once a week. And some of those people are coming from places where they've never seen anything more advanced than a flip phone. They've never seen, like a web browser, right? Because they were coming from a place that was more agriculturally based and maybe didn't even have an electricity wired to where they lived. And this is not to say that their experience is somehow lesser, but simply to say that imagine walking out from that life and coming into a public library for the first time and trying to figure out how to get a driver's license, right? It's a really shocking experience and librarians do a lot of work to help acclimate people and provide them with the right tools and resources so that they can make the most educated decisions about what they do online. That's true. So much more than just checking out books and such. Right. Yeah, no, I just don't. I feel like we as a culture like in like the US we just don't really think about like all the ways we use the internet. Like Mm -hmm. we use the internet for healthcare. We use the internet for like signing up for a new service i mean like like i mean you can even use the internet to order groceries i mean Mm -hmm. like and to kind of walk into a like you know a kind of a culture like that i like i can't even like that's something something i wouldn't even think about that i guess these librarians have to deal with and think about every day which yeah yeah and there really are advocates for for privacy and letting you know what what your rights are like you you showed some examples of signs that they would post around libraries to let you know like the implications of using this because it is federally funded in the laws and all of that. That's really great. They're advocates for for the users. Yeah, the American Library Association, the ALA, does a lot of advocacy work, especially around web access. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that were coordinating a lot of the protests of Section 215 of the Patriot Act. And they also were the ones, like, they're the ones that do all of the research Most of my research came from the Pew Research Center, the ALA, and also privately Microsoft and Google because they've done a lot of work assessing broadband connections in rural areas. Mm -hmm. But the ALA does, their focus has been on making sure to enable people to have the best kind of access possible. And in some cases, that means that they have to get political Mm -hmm. and they have to step up and say, no, we don't want surveillance in our locations. And we're going to put up signs letting our patrons know that if the FBI gets a hold of their computer records, we can't even tell them that, which, thank goodness, was uh, rescinded when 
the four Connecticut librarians sued the U.S. Attorney General so that they could rescind the gag orders. And thankfully now librarians are able to speak about it. So they made progress. They used direct action, which I wish the tech community would pay more attention to. Yeah, absolutely. What else was a a highlight of your talk, would you say? That's a good question. I wish I could have included more about my personal experiences going to libraries. One of the reasons why I wanted to give this talk was because, not just because of my own personal experience in libraries, but because I have the privilege of being able to speak at a number of tech conferences every year, and I am not really able to travel on my own privately, but being able to travel to speak at conferences is such a huge privilege in my life. And when I realized that there was this discrepancy between experiencing the web if you own a device and experiencing the web if you don't own a device, it made me curious what it was like to use the internet in other places. Mm-hmm. So I would go to any, every time I was visiting another city to give a talk at a conference, I always made an effort to go to the public library. So I visited the Austin Public Library central location in downtown Austin. I visited a couple of different branches of the San Francisco Public Library. I wanted to go to smaller locations because I knew that the homeless population in San Francisco was extremely affected by these issues. And I knew that they were going to have difficulty at larger branch locations that are usually attracting families and groups of people that generally have bias against homeless people. And I knew from observing the city that there were more homeless people using the internet from smaller branches. So I made it a point to go to smaller branches. I went to New York Public Library locations. I did make it to one Seattle Public Library location, but their internet was down that day. (laughs) (laughs) Which was, you know, a little ironic, but you get what you can take, right? You don't always have access. Like, that's the reality of those people's lives is sometimes they go in expecting to be able to pay a bill on time and they can't. And that's an aspect of access that we don't think about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know this might be a bit off topic, but um, have you heard of the, like, I guess discrepancy between how people who don't know how to use the internet give way more of their data? Definitely. One of the points that I tried to make in my talk was that a lot of people just aren't aware of the amount of leakage that happens online. For example, paying bills online, uploading photos online. Mm -hmm. Those are all things that can, if you're using a website that isn't as advanced as, say, if I needed to pay my credit card bill online, Chase has really strong like security measures that will, if you're logging into a new device, it will send, it requires you to do two-factor authentication and it gives you an option of text or email, mm-hmm. which is required, I believe, by law because they're a banking institution. But imagine trying to make a payment through a website that is selling like cheaply made clothing mm-hmm. that is maybe a subsidiary of Amazon that has its own personal page where you can maybe save money on shipping. So they try to get people who are looking at their items on Amazon to go buy it directly from their site and inputting your payment information through a website like that could be very insecure. And you know, when you're trying to save an extra buck and you're at the library and you just want to order some, you know, shirts that are going to work for your job, you might not think about that. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be at the top of your mind as much as saving the extra cash is going to be. And so a lot of librarians 
provide web literacy information and they do try to educate people on security. But the limitations of that are that if you don't have your own device, it's going to be harder to maintain your password manager. It's going to be harder to maintain your personal information. It's going to be harder to maintain what leaks and what doesn't. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really good point because like I use a password manager. So if I can, my passwords are like 64 characters, the max that my mm-hmm. password manager will do. Right. But I definitely don't want to type that in on a device that's not my own, right? Right. Yeah, it, it's definitely prohibitive if you don't have that ability because even if you tried to use it on your phone and then you're just typing it into you know, a computer somewhere like that is a lot to do. And another thing that kind of ties ties into that is is the education of your data is worth quite a lot, actually. There's a reason Absolutely. that Facebook and Google are more profitable than oil companies, right? Your data is worth a lot. And your metadata is worth a lot, mm-hmm. more importantly. And I think that while libraries are doing the best that they can to provide secure access to the internet, a lot of libraries in more rural parts of the country don't have enough funding and don't have access to fancy private-public partnerships like Google did with Kansas City or Microsoft did with, I believe they did it with Ferry County, which is in their home state of Washington. Mm. So in those more rural parts of the country, like for example in Idaho, like I was discussing, Only, I believe they said like 70% of 103 Idaho libraries have broadband speeds that are comparable to what other broadband speeds are. And so imagine if you can't even afford to provide internet access that is market competitive to the broadband speeds or have a computer that is running something like newer than Windows 8 Mm -hmm. or have browsers that are updated on a regular basis. Not every library has the privilege of being able to update their stuff regularly. A lot of them have to go through really stringent policies Mm -hmm. and submit proposals. And that's why like even today we still see library computers running Windows 8 and Windows 10 and they're only just now updating to Windows 10 because they finally got approval for their proposal and then they finally got funding for that proposal. I mean, that adds to the security. You know, I didn't even think about if they use a, a browser that's out of date. I mean, if they use, I, I'm not sure if any of them would use IE or something like that. But like, if they did use that browser, I mean, that could provide like, you know, some security leaks. Definitely. I remember definitely having a problem with the fact that IE9 was the standard browser available at the LA Public Library when I lived next door. Yeah, like Chrome and Firefox were still on there, but it got mad at you if you tried to use them. And most people aren't really aware of browser stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you were to walk down the street and ask someone who wasn't in tech what their browser preferences are, I can bet you it is not based on security and it is not based on like the things that we care about. It's based on personal preferences. It's based on experiences, right? Like if you have a difficult time using a browser, just because it was difficult, you're going to have negative connotations and associations Mm -hmm. with that. And so people hold grudges, you know, people Mm -hmm. have personal preferences. And that might mean that somebody is more comfortable using IE because that's what was available to them. And that's how they learned how to use the internet. And they're not going to go and learn what the difference is between IE and Chrome and Firefox and Safari, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right, and they don't know either. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they wouldn't know they they'd be getting like a degraded experience at all. There's a library somewhere I want to say in Vermont that took really intense efforts and put their entire library system on Tor, so they only use Tor browsers, and oh. they faced a lot of 
backlash from the government. The Department of Homeland Security came in and like told them you shouldn't be using Tor and like we have a problem with this and tried to basically bully them into stop using Tor. And there's a little bit of an issue with that because like Mm -hmm. having the police come in and harass your library for using something that's meant to protect you is also going to scare people away from coming into the library. And it's going to make them feel like they should avoid that library and avoid those services when in reality the librarians were just trying to do their best to protect their patrons. Right. Right. So as individuals, is there like a call to action that we can do to help provide more education or some kind of some kind of action that we can do to, to yeah. help this situation. As developers, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I would say that on a community basis, there's mm-hmm. a lot of really fun things that we can do with our companies. If we can urge our companies to get more involved in private and public partnerships, that would have the most valuable effect on bringing change. And what I mean by private and public partnerships is the way that Microsoft is working on bringing new technology that would utilize unused television signals to spread super wide. It's called they call it super Wi-Fi because it's basically Wi-Fi spots that spread across great distances. Mm-hmm. And while that is a much more ambitious project, there is a lot of ways that a little bit of extra funding could help a library update their computer system. Donating software can help them update their computer system. A lot of them have to go through websites like TechSoup to purchase uh, discounted software. And that means that they're making choices based on budget and not based on what is best for their users and their patrons. So on a grand scale and for the most value, I would definitely say private and public partnerships. On a more individual level, there's a lot of like just getting involved just host your next workshop at a public library host your next meetup at a public library host a crypto party at a public library go to your local library and ask the people at the desk hey i want to get involved i work in tech i have these skills i want to help you support the people that come here get to know the people in your neighborhood get to know the people that come to your local library because Not only is it going to bring you a great sense of fulfillment teaching people who might not otherwise have access to these things, how sharing with them and being a source of information for them is going to really help you. Maybe it will bolster you internally, but imagine the great effect that we can have on our local communities. Like even just forgetting the effect that it'll have on you personally, Mm -hmm. that is going to have such a huge effect on local communities, especially with the rate of gentrification as it is in major U.S. cities. If you can at least give back by going to your local library and being a resource to the people who don't have the kind of access that you have, you can help bring more equity to systems that otherwise oppress people. And lastly, I would say that there's, in my talk, I go through a lot of the various barriers that people who use the library for internet experience. And some of those barriers are things that we are making with the websites we're working on. For example, a lot of the library computers will not allow you to download stuff. And so with currently very low broadband speeds available at a majority of libraries, running things off of the cloud means people are waiting a really long time to use Mm -hmm. stuff. And with the limited amount of time that you're allowed on a library computer, imagine that you only have 
a 25 minute session, maybe maximum amount of time that I think you can have on a library computer in most cases is about two hours and that's two separate sessions of an hour long. Mm -hmm. Um, Worst case scenario is two half hour sessions. Even worse than that, there are a lot of public libraries that restrict guest access and make it more difficult for people to even get a guest pass. So taking into account that experience and considering that the next time that we work on a product, I think is a really valuable way that we can create impact in the workspace. For example, one of the things I really wanted to get to in my talk that unfortunately I wasn't able to get to because my speaker notes glitched was that the search engine watch did a study in 2017 that found that images can slow down loading time and account for 68% of total page weight as compared to the 17% of total page size devoted to JavaScript. And so really, while we might think that not having JavaScript is the answer, sometimes just making our images more responsive Mm -hmm. can help people's experiences. Of course, we also do need to consider the fact that there are some people that need to turn JavaScript off in their browsers, and a lot of those people are using library computers. And in some cases, PC reservation software is built so that the browser that's available is only available in incognito mode or in a similar um, mode that allows the library to avoid holding on to your private information. And this means that, for example, uh, if you are using a library computer that is limited to these private modes, you might not even be able to see any news articles because websites like the New York Times, Washington Post, they all hide their news articles on incognito sites because they want to track all of this information, right? So being more aware of what your website and your product means for people in these situations who don't have the opportunities that we have, I think is something that we should all be doing on the job. And that's why I was so excited to give this talk because I've literally never seen anybody talk about what it means to use a computer if you don't own one. Mm-hmm. It's really, really interesting because it's it's not something that you consider every day. Absolutely. Especially as developers. You're right. I mean, I would really love to challenge every web developer, try to go a full weekend without using a laptop or a smartphone, try to set it up so that you have to like go and print out your driving directions to where you're going to go that weekend in advance. And you have to remember like, oh, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there and I don't know where those places are. So I need to go to a library computer on Friday, get those directions, print them out and have them in a safe spot. Right. I actually really miss this service that I didn't think about it until after my talk. I was discussing with somebody after the talk that Google had a texting service available for a really long time. And you used to be able to text Google and it would text you back driving directions. It would text you back like information about a place. So you could do certain searches through Mm -hmm. SMS. And I used to use it all the time because I didn't have my first smartphone until I was like almost midway, almost done with college. I think I didn't get my first iPhone until I transferred from junior college to four-year university. Mm So I was texting Google for driving directions constantly, and it was like 18 text messages, but you wouldn't believe how much better of an experience that was than having to go and print out MapQuest directions, which I also used to do before the internet was like as strong as it is today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's a great call to action to end on. Uh, Try going with a not-your-own-tech weekend uh, and see just how difficult it is, because I think that would be very beneficial for everyone. 
It would be so cool. I would really love to see like the tweet threads of what your experiences were like when you went a weekend without your phone and your laptop yeah. and your internet connection. This is a funny tangent. On the way to the conference, I was packing up my place and like setting everything up to be out of town. And a few days ago, one of my neighbors cut a tree down. And so I was watering all my plants before leaving, like drowning them in water. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, all these ants just came pouring out of my plants because I had drowned the plant soil in water. And so they were trying to escape the water. And so I'm just frantically Googling, like, how do you get rid of ants in your plants and trying to figure out how I can get a hold of the situation and still make it on time to driving down from LA to San Diego for the conference. I don't want to think about how that experience would have been if I didn't have my smartphone. Because right. honestly, yeah. I probably would have been crying in a corner with ants crawling <laughs> all over me. So yeah, just like... That's true, little things like that. I yeah. Mean, I Google how to like, I don't know, do things all the time. Yes. Like, I don't know, like even like small, like how to tend to a wound even sometimes. <laughs> like, I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's We're so everything. dependent. And we it's, really We don't are. even think about it anymore. That one where I just text my mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've started writing down certain things that I've Googled too often and keep them on my like kitchen refrigerator. Um, I keep them on my refrigerator door, like the amount of time that I steep my coffee or like how long it takes to hard boil an egg because I'm just tired of Googling yeah. how long it takes to hard boil an egg. Because I don't remember, like I remember now that it's 10 minutes because I just brought it up. But if I needed to hard boil an egg in the yeah. moment, I wouldn't remember how long it is. And right. like, do we really need to be Googling how long you need yeah. to hard boil an egg? Yeah. And you will be prepared for that coming apocalypse. <laughs> Technology, uh, tech apocalypse. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's another thing. Like, we should all take a minute to understand what it means to use the Internet the way that people in libraries use them. Because, frankly, if net neutrality doesn't work out, Mm -hmm. we're all going to be dealing with those low broadband speeds that Mm. most libraries have to deal with on a regular basis. And so... And the privacy implications. And the privacy implications. I can't. Well, we both both mispronounced it. That was great. (laughs) Implications. Implications. (laughs) Implementations and implications are two different words. (laughs) We're professional podcasters. It's cool. (laughs) I'm a professional word speaker, so. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your JSConf. Thank you. You too. All right, and we're back. I'm Nick Nisi. I'm Neil Roberts. And I'm Theodore. Worry less. Yeah. We just got out of your talk. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was amazing because mm-hmm. uh, the JS conference is uh, so great. I'm so glad to be with you guys. But uh, every presentation is um, amazing so far and I'm just waiting for the next ones. Yeah. You did a live demo, which was a, a big risk, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I'm uh, playing my cards here because uh, every single time I'm trying to improvise and I'm trying to give something uh, through my talks. So live demos are always cool, are always risky, but still, though, I'm nailing it every single time, thank God. That's good. So tell us a little bit about what your demo was. Okay, so my presentation was about a device that I prototyped. is a device that helps visually impaired people learn how to use Braille. Braille is the language used from visually impaired people allow them, that allows them to read and write. It's a tactile system. And actually using an Arduino and JavaScript, I delivered uh, a device that 
could help people learn how to use Braille. So you, it's like a, just a single Braille cell, right? With, yeah, exactly. With six pins that you can put your finger exactly. on. Exactly. And the idea is that you can use the device with a single cell. And afterwards, you can attach more cells uh, in order to provide you with a more delicate way of reading, with a more automatic way of reading. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So the pins come up under your finger. Exactly. And make the the um, the pattern. braille letter. Yeah. The pattern. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, from there, you can you can read. So I'm, I'm curious if you just used it in that single cell mm -hmm. pattern, could you almost like speed read if you just held your finger there and just, <laughs> just constantly? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you can use the device in order to exercise and learn the alphabet. Mm -hmm. But uh, during some study groups that I uh, made with uh, visually impaired people. I was amazed because people were using the device, so it's really important. Uh, the speed is important for them. Mm -hmm. And they can actually use the device with a single cell in order to properly read. But we have made some... I was always amazed because we made some uh, study groups using a multi-line bright cell device. And these people are somehow superhuman. So if you think about it, how you read, you are actually focusing from the start of the line, going backwards and so on. Mm -hmm. And I was amazed because people were using the device uh, with both of their hands, mm -hmm. starting from the very end and the very beginning, the very beginning and the very end of uh, the line. And they were just moving their, <laughs> their hands from one way to another and were like super speed readers. Wow. Yeah. It very was amazing. Cool. And... That's originally the idea. So we can use the device with a single cell, with multiple cells. And my goal is somehow in the near future create something like a mobile device, something like a tablet mm -hmm. that, could, uh, that would allow people to read books. That's the idea. Yeah. A Kindle for visually impaired people. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So the, uh, your talk focused on the uh, technical details of that and working with JavaScript to code this device to, exactly. to uh, give it its brains, basically. Mm -hmm. And you also had to put work into the demo itself because it looked like it was a website. Is that right? With yeah, a, yeah, yeah. With a, a bar where you type in what you want exactly. uh, to say. And then you had a camera and letters. And I, I was really intrigued by the alphabet that you were using, the font that you were using mm -hmm. to yeah. show those letters. Uh, it seemed like... As someone who does not know Braille, mm -hmm. uh, it seemed like that alphabet could really help you kind of learn Braille because exactly. it kind of put the uh, the pins, if you were, that would stick up um, inside of the letters that they were. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the font face used is called Braille Noi. It's a font face that actually combines alphabet symbols and letters with uh, the Braille alphabet. Mm -hmm. And it helps us, the society, to have a more visual representation of the characters printed out. And as you said, the idea of using JavaScript is really important because we can mix and match technologies. Like we can use hardware development with uh, web technologies. Mm -hmm. And that's actually amazing because someone who starts learning JavaScript uh, can uh, create something that's meaningful beyond technologies. Mm -hmm. So we can uh, push people towards a future where they can use hardware development with mobile development and uh, web development all together. I think the future is bright, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it was neat for you to show that like we have these very expensive single purpose devices mm -hmm. for for reading braille that you know a lot of people can't afford, but that all of these uh, new boards and even the components you can buy for the boards make it so that you can do a variety of things that were only available through these like really expensive devices exactly. before, right? Like it it's really opening up 
the way of doing these kind of devices for anyone to be able to work exactly. on. Exactly. So the original refreshable bright displays are using some pieces of technology like sophisticated polymers and some tiny modules called piezo electronics that are like super expensive. Mm-hmm. And also the marketplace is so nice that there's no such thing as research and development. So mm-hmm. nowadays we can use different modules from different countries and uh, we can actually reduce the cost for embedded development. Yeah. That's really cool. The other neat thing you said is you were saying, like, why would we use JavaScript on these boards mm-hmm. when, you know, we have the native version or whatever. Exactly. And I like that you said, like, JavaScript was written from the start to be an event-driven paradigm. And that's what we have with hardware. Yeah. So if you think about it, hardware development is no different than using a web user interface. So we have buttons, we have sensors, we have to deal with asynchronous programming. All these paradigms are there. And if someone actually studies about, start learning more about embedded development, they will find out that paradigms that are used in web development or backend development are the same as back then. Mm. And that's great. Yeah, it was neat. Like you had, you know, where you're, you get an event when the board's ready, mm-hmm. right? Then you get an event when you've sent this message and the message was received, right? Like exactly. having that sort of system where you're notified when things happen, you're notified when the things were successful or things failed. That seems like a really cool way to be able to handle yeah. hardware. Yeah, some, sometimes hardware development can be harsh because you have to deal with uh, different aspects from web, web development. So you have to deal with different boards, protocols, and so on. And using a framework like Johnny 5, it's really neat because you can actually start developing and make something that's useful mm-hmm. from day one, just using JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool how you can just use this technology that is relatively cheap, like Arduinos and and then open source software like yeah. uh, Johnny Five, and and really just you know take something that is really expensive and build it yourself mm-hmm. and build yeah. it better in a lot of ways. And it reminds me of the you know how you hear about the paint creases that people are working on, yeah, uh, that, that they hack together with, mm-hmm. with parts and things to to do that because it's expensive and they can really do it themselves and better manage it. And, and yeah, so. We are actually living in an era where people are taking something like uh, home automation software and hardware mm-hmm. and they're making their own prototypes. And that's really cool because we're actually expanding in the way that people can make a living from uh, development. Like yeah. You can start your own hardware, you can start your own prototype, and that's really great. And we can actually, using some such piece of technology, we can uh, provide people in need with... Uh, better hardware or better experiences. So we can, I like the paradigm of Raspberry Pi. So when the Raspberry Pi came out, they were like super cheap uh, computational units. And mm. now we can see people in developing countries using computers made from Raspberry Pis. And yeah. mm-hmm. that's really great because we're going beyond uh, the big industries, the mm-hmm. hardware companies and so on. Yeah, like we, one of the things you said that was neat was that um, that it seems like a good community fit mm-hmm. for JavaScript to be on these hardware boards. And that, that actually made me think of like the way that a lot of JavaScript developers are very excited about how JavaScript really can do so much. It seems like a natural fit for accessibility to be something that JavaScript developers care deeply about. Yeah. And we haven't, we don't, we see that more and more as we go. But I think that's such a good way of telling JavaScript developers that they need to be more involved in accessibility. Because if you care about the things that JavaScript cares about, 
it's a natural fit for accessibility to fit in that pattern. Yeah, exactly. And that actually makes me proud being a member of this community is the fact that we are moving beyond and we can ta- now talk up. And actually, it's great that people can make a living from uh, things that matter, like accessibility, like uh, talking about human rights, uh, inclusive patterns and mm-hmm. systems. And that's great, right? And the community itself embraces people to move towards this uh, this goal, this vision. And I'm really proud being a member of a community that openly speaks about these things. Mm-hmm. I think it's like almost a, a challenge, right, to JavaScript developers saying like, now you know that these boards are cheap. Now you know that there are applications that are tremendously expensive for disadvantaged communities. Mm-hmm. Now you know that you can put JavaScript on these devices and solve these problems. So do it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Leading by example with that. <laughs> yeah. If you want a new challenge, here's a new challenge for you. Yeah. And I think that people can come up with great ideas. Mm-hmm. If you step into the embedded development world, you can find out that there are like so many possibilities, like there are like uh, sensors uh, for heat, for humidity, mm-hmm. for infrared, and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think. If someone wants to step in into this world, there will be great products for us. And there will be great products for people in need. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> yeah. So if people want to uh, get involved, uh, is there a way that they can contribute to this project? Yeah. So there's an organization called Bright.js. We can find it on GitHub. Okay. Right now, there's the there's just the prototype online. As I said in the presentation, I'm currently working on a Bright Printer. Uh, that runs JavaScript. So that's a really big project that will come up, I guess, in the uh, in the next few months. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually experimenting um, with wearables. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that we can, I can make it to create something like uh, Bright Smartwatch. Mm-hmm. There's, there are a few products out there, but they're also really expensive. But I think I can make it. And uh, finally... My original goal is to create something an affordable, something like an affordable uh, bright display, and yeah, that process requires lots of thinking, lots of uh, engineering, lots of prototyping. So it will take a while, but uh, I think the bright printer will be online in the upcoming months. Cool, great. Yeah, yeah thanks so much. Yeah, thank thank you very you much. Thanks so much. We got a good thing going on. Bye, bye, bye. Bye.